For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. And we're back for a third week in the Gospel of Mark, studying the life of Jesus Christ. We've seen John the Baptist come on the scene and announce the coming of Jesus. We saw Jesus baptized last week by his cousin John, and this week, before he begins his public ministry, he's going to head out into the desert to face his ancient enemy, Satan. That's right, we've got a duel in the desert this week, and I hope as we study Jesus being tempted by Satan that we'll learn a thing or two about temptation and how to resist it. But first, let's pray. Lord God, you love us so much, and you came and you rescued us, Lord, when we were so deep in our own mess. And God, you, you know what it's like to feel tempted. And we're thankful that we have Jesus Christ to lead us through how to resist temptation, how to defeat Satan, Lord. Some of us, were feeling tempted. We're feeling defeated. Lord, we've got secrets we haven't told anybody. I pray that Tonight, as we look into your word, that you would speak to our hearts, you'd give us the encouragement we need and the direction we need. Amen. Well, Americans are looking for something to do now that the stay-at-home order has taken effect. And one of the places that they're turning is the ancient pastime of fishing. That's right, fishing. State of Vermont reported that fishing license applications were up almost 50% over this time last year. They're selling these things in record numbers. And fishing's a pretty good activity to do for social distancing. I mean, you know, you're standing at least six feet apart from each other anyway, just to keep from hooking your friends in the face. I mean, it takes a lot of time, but we got a lot, of, a lot more time on our hands right now without the usual sports and other entertainments there for us. But, you know, one of the frustrating things about fishing is you just got to sit there. And you can't make the fish bite. You're waiting for them to make the move, but you're not powerless. As the fisherman, what you're trying to do is you're trying to create an enticing temptation for these fish in the hopes that they will decide to chomp down hard enough on your lure or on your bait. And what fishermen do to overcome this is they have their ways of making the fish bite. You know, good fishermen know when to fish. Uh, some friends of mine were talking about going fishing a couple Saturdays ago, and I said, yeah, what time? And they said, 7 a.m. And I said, 7 a.m. on a Saturday? It's going to be 34 and drizzling. And they're like, yeah, I know. That's when the fish are hungry. And I said, no, thanks. And they're like, well, you're lost, man. And they went fishing. That's how committed the, the good fisherman is to going at the right time. You've got to know when the fish are hungry. That's when they're most likely to bite. You've also got to use the right bait. Good fishermen, I've noticed, they've all got kind of their different set of lures, and they usually have one or two of their favorite lures. But they've got some other fallbacks when the fish are not biting that one. Plus, of course, the standard hook and bait and those sorts of things. So you've got to use the right bait. And you also, it's not just having the right lure, but you've got to know how to, how to reel that thing, how to yank that lure so that it looks realistic enough for the fish to be enticed by it. You've also got to keep a line in the water. Good fishermen, they have their line in the water more than anybody. And sometimes they have two or three lines in the water. They find a way to rig multiple poles because the more lines they have in the water, the more they're fishing, the more likely they are to catch some fish. And the fish 
will eventually bite. The good fisherman typically catches more than the others, even though they're fishing the same waters. And you know, those fish, they're swimming along and they might, they might be in, a, in a, a portion of water full of lures. And at first, it's not too tempting for them, but eventually they start getting hungry and they start thinking that lure looks pretty good. And before you know it, they've chomped down. They're, they're either thinking of biting or they've bitten and they're hooked and they've got to fight for their lives. What turned out to be a peaceful swim through the water is now a fight for their life. And you might wonder, why am I bringing up fishing? The answer is because we've got a lot more in common with these fish than you might think. When we open the pages of Scripture, we learn that we are not swimming in friendly waters. There are dangers out there. We live in the midst of conflict. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We talked about this last week. When God created humans, he created us in a perfect world. He put the first humans in, in paradise. We were never meant to die. But God warned them. He said, do not eat from this one particular tree. What was the point? It wasn't really about the tree or the fruit that it produced. The point was that God was giving them a choice. God was saying, do you want to be in this relationship or not? Do you want to follow my leadership or not? So he gave them one rule, and they had to decide whether they would follow him or not. They could get out any time. He didn't want someone held in a relationship against their will because God is love and he wants a love relationship. But he did warn those first humans that sin brings death. And the day you eat of this, you will surely die. And also on the very first pages of scripture, we see an enemy enter the picture, God's enemy, known as Satan. He begins speaking with these early humans. He, he tempts them to break the one rule that God made. He starts talking with them and they start thinking, boy, that looks pretty good. They saw that that fruit looked pretty tasty. It was very beautiful, very appealing to the eye, and it was desirable to make one wise. And so they took and they ate. He painted God like this controlling despot. He's trying to keep you from something good. Wouldn't it be so much better if you did this thing he didn't want you to do? And so they threw off God's leadership, which brought death to the human race. But even in that moment, we saw that God announced his rescue plan. He would send a promised one. And that promised one would one day defeat Satan and fix everything. And what we've seen in the book of Mark is that finally the promised one has come. He's here, Jesus Christ. And now, even though he's been born into poverty and obscurity, he's been baptized by John. Now, before he's ready to begin his public ministry, there's this matter of Satan. And so Jesus heads out into the desert to face his ancient enemy. And we're going to take a look at this tonight. Mark tells us in chapter 1, verse 12, immediately the Spirit impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness, immediately on the heels of this spiritual high, this baptism that Jesus went through. He sent out into a tremendous trial, a tremendous time of suffering, this wilderness you know, this would be the Judean wilderness. This would be the mountainous area leading down to the Dead Sea. This is a very rugged, difficult terrain. You know, they don't call it the Dead Sea for nothing. This would not have been a, a walk in the park. And so Jesus, he, he goes out into the wilderness to face Satan. He's not going to wait for Satan to come to him. He is going to go out there. He's going to go into very adverse conditions. And he's going to face Satan in that territory. And Mark tells us that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days 
being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Well, Satan, we got to talk about Satan a little bit. He's often depicted in ridiculous ways, you know. It's like he's some guy in red spandex or, you know, he's like the little guy on this shoulder and there's a little angel on this shoulder and they're both whispering into your ears. As a result of these ridiculous portrayals, many don't even believe in Satan. And Satan is totally fine with that because that just makes his job easier. As it says in The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. But Satan does exist. And there's a lot of reasons to believe in Satan. But one is that Jesus talks a lot about Satan. And so if you believe Jesus, and if you want to follow his teaching, you better take Satan seriously because he taught on Satan more than anyone else in the Bible. He talks a lot about Satan. He wanted his disciples to know about Satan because Satan um, is Jesus' enemy, and he becomes our enemy as well when we become a follower of Jesus. In fact, Satan was the head of the angels. He was an angel. He was the leader, the, the top dog, the most beautiful, the most brilliant. In fact, so brilliant, he fell a little bit too in love with himself. And so pride was the original sin of Satan. And he was corrupted on account of his splendor, and he fell. He said, why has everybody got to follow God? And he's so persuasive, he talked about a third of the angels into following him as well. These are what the scripture calls demons. But Satan is no match for God. You know, in the superhero movies where Thanos squares off against the Avengers, and it's an equal battle, and how are they going to defeat him? And he's got some weakness on them. Or you think about the Eastern concept of the yin and the yang, the two equal struggles between good and evil. That's not how the Bible depicts Satan. Satan's no match for God. God allows Satan to continue to exist. And he's given him a certain amount of freedom for the time. It's part of a larger thing that's going on. But one day, Satan will be done away with. God will put an end to him very easily. Bing! And we will never have to deal with Satan again. So Jesus is out there with Satan. It says he's in the wilderness for 40 days. He's with the wild beasts. Yeah, these conditions couldn't have been any tougher. Mark tells us with the wild beasts, just in case, you know, you're tempted to romanticize the desert like cowboys around a campfire. No, the wild beasts, the, the desert vipers, the cobras, the hyenas. Remember that region in Lion King? The Shadowlands? This would have been that kind of thing dangerous. And he's in there for 40 days, and, and Luke gives us additional information. Jesus ate nothing the whole time, drinking only water. And so he was on a 40-day fast from food, water only, and this would have been a level of hunger that I doubt any of us have ever felt, especially under these circumstances. You know, a 40-day fast, at a certain point, the body begins to digest all the fat, and then it goes after the muscle less essential muscle. And then it goes after more essential muscles, like, you know, the heart. A lot of people that die of starvation, they actually die of a heart attack because the body has been digesting the heart and thus the heart fails. Jesus would have looked really bad. This would have taken a long time to recover from a fast like this under these conditions. And so he's weak. He's hungry. He's vulnerable. And this is when Satan comes to him. He was out there with Satan, being tempted by Satan. Yes, what does Satan do when he has Jesus alone in the desert? Does he, you know, go at him with a knife? 
Is he coming behind him and put him in a chokehold? No. No. He tempts him. He comes with temptation. Yes, Satan is called the tempter in other places in Scripture. This is one of his names in the Bible. This is something he's known for, one of his specialties. And, you know, a lot of times Satan, he's got demons that kind of work for him. He can't be personally present everywhere at once like God can. But this is a case where he shows up personally because he's not going to miss his chance to take a shot one-on-one with the Messiah. Yeah, he, Satan goes around tempting. And um, what Scripture says is God allows, apparently allows him to do this. And why? It's because God is giving us a choice. God is saying, you want to follow me? Do you want to trust me or not? Just like those first humans, he gives us a choice as well. Free will apparently is an important thing to God as part of his relational nature. Yeah, Satan doesn't make us do anything. He doesn't force us. There's no, the devil made me do it. Now, Satan, he sets the stage. He sets the table. We're the ones that make the decision. It's like he's the expert fisherman, and we are the fish. He's there. He knows the times when we're hungry. He's not going to bother fishing when we're not. He knows those times. He's willing to get up at 6 in the morning. He's willing to stay up till 2 in the morning, if that's the ideal time. He's got his lures. Really, not that many. He's not that creative, because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And uh, he knows when to abandon one lure and go for another one. And he also knows how to work those lures so they seem as appealing as possible. And we're like those fish. And I suppose some of us were swimming along in lure-free waters. We're as happy as can be. And if that's the situation you're in, then I'm, I'm happy for you. But for a lot of us, that's not the situation we're in. We're feeling hungry. We're looking around. There's lures everywhere. And they're starting to look pretty good. We're thinking about chomping down, or maybe we already have. And we're in a fight for our lives. And perhaps we're trying to keep other people from even seeing that we're hooked. Satan is the tempter, and he is the master fisherman. Some of us feel like we're the only ones struggling. I've talked to a number of people who feel that way. They're surprised to hear that other people are having similar struggles to them. One of the ways Satan really works best is when he gets you isolated. That's why he comes to Jesus out here when he's alone. He sees his opportunity. I've talked to people over the past month and a half who say, I'm slowly starving to death without fellowship. I love technology and I hate it. I'm so sick of seeing people through screens. I just want to see them face to face and relax and hang out. You know, it's funny. Jesus was out there 40 days in the wilderness I realize today is the 40 day, 40th day of the stay-at-home order that DeWine instituted last month. And so maybe some of us are feeling like it's been about 40 days. That's because it has. People say, I'm suffering, but then I feel bad because other people in other parts of the world are suffering a lot worse. And so you kind of feel guilty that I'm feeling bad about my circumstances. People are like, I spend time with God. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's totally dry. I don't know how to fix that. I feel so tired so much of the time. And I find myself really short-arming a lot of things. I feel like my emotional reserves are gone. There's things that normally I'd be able to absorb. I'd be able to handle. And now I find my temper flaring up. 
because I just can't take this in stride like I could have a month or two ago. I'm having a hard time with these other people I'm stuck at home with. Those roommates starting to get a little bit on your nerves. You won't just want to get away. I talked to married couples who are getting a little bit annoyed with their spouses or you know, they show up for time with their spouse and they just feel bad because they're tired and they're not sure what to talk about and we've been around each other a lot lately. It's like there's no energy left for the people that we care about the most. And so the temptation is severe and the hungrier we are, the more tempting the lure is to bite down on. There's the temptation to just feel sorry for myself instead of gratitude and that is a, a spiral that you do not want to get into. There's the temptation to laziness in my relationships where I'm just going in and taking and not even trying. I show up at meetings of my home church and uh, I'm just, I've got a terrible attitude. I'm putting no effort in. Laziness and how I spend my days, I'm just sleeping longer and longer. I'm lying around more and more in front of the screen. I'm not really making any effort to get time with God. And I feel bad about these things, but I don't know what to do about it. There's the temptation to bitterness stewing on ways that people have wronged you, replaying interactions in your mind. Boy, the temptation to sex or pornography. You know, part of what's happening, some of us were logging onto these Zoom meetings and we're remembering other chat rooms, live chat rooms we've logged into. And we're feeling the temptation to go back to those. Or at least to surf on over and check out some porno, uh, if, if not just going for it with a real live human. Immoral sex. There's all kinds of unhealthy ways we try to escape. We spend to numb the pain. And we get a little burst for a little while. Eating is at an all-time high. Substance abuse is another tempting way to zone out and to anesthetize. And there's just classic judging others in self-righteousness. You feel like you're handling this better than other people. You're following the, the orders better than other people are. And... There's a temptation to judge others, to think I'm better than other people. But you're not the only one that's feeling these ways. And God has some promises for you during this time. Promises like this wonderful verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. So we see that you're not a freak for experiencing temptation. I bet you other people are feeling the same way that you are. You just aren't talking to them about it. Secondly, God knows how much you can bear. And he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And so if you're not a Christian, you're on your own. You're at the mercy of Satan and his forces. But if you become a Christian, then you come under the protection of God. And God will step in and say, actually, no, that's enough. This guy, he can only handle a three out of 10. That girl, she can do a seven out of 10 because God has brought her up to a point where she can handle that through other suffering that she's, she's resisted. You know, God, he's like the perfect personal trainer who knows exactly how far he can stretch us to provide those gains that we want, those spiritual gains. So God knows how much you can handle. He won't let things go beyond that, beyond a level that's appropriate for you. 
And third and finally, we have Jesus to teach us how to overcome it. Yeah, we need to go to someone who was victorious every single time, who was tempted every way and yet was without sin. He's the one we need to learn from. You know, one of the recurring themes in the Harry Potter series is in seven years at Hogwarts, they had seven different teachers for defense against the dark, dark arts, and only one of them was any good. A new teacher every year. How are they supposed to defend against Voldemort if they've got nobody to teach them defense against the dark arts? They're basically self-taught. We don't have to worry about that. Self-taught and trial and error. We've got Jesus who promises to stand with us as we stand against temptation. He wants to teach us how to overcome it. That's what we want to learn from him as we look a little closer at this passage. And in order to do that, Mark only really gives us one verse on the temptations. Luke gives us 13 of them. And so I wanted just to take a look over there and see what additional insights we can draw from the book of Luke about the nature of temptation and how to resist it. We're in Luke chapter 4 then, and Luke says, the first temptation. You know, Luke really boils these down into three basic ones. I'm sure over 40 days, there were a lot of shots that Satan took, although I would imagine he waited until the opportune moments, until Jesus was the hungriest, the weakest, before he moved in with his temptations. But Luke really boils these down into three. Really three. And these are basically Satan's three lures that he uses, not just on Jesus, but he uses in other situations as well. The first one, Luke writes, Then the devil said to him, If you're the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. Hmm. So the first thing we see is that Satan is speaking. This is not common in Scripture. You know how many times he speaks in Scripture? Three times we get the words of Satan. One we've already talked about in the very beginning of the Bible. He comes to Adam and Eve in the garden of paradise. And there he accuses God to man. The second time, he, he's in the throne room of God, in the book of Job in heaven. And there... He accuses man to God. He accuses Job before God. This third time, he's back on earth, but he's talking to the God-man. And so he doesn't accuse God to man or man to God. He just falls back on his three trusty, tried-and-true lures that John describes for us, for example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. John says, you know, the world offers only one, a craving for physical pleasure. Isn't that what we read back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6? They saw that the fruit was good for food, tasty. The world offers only a craving for everything we see. Isn't that the very next thing in Genesis 3, 6? That that fruit was a delight to the eyes. They were craving what they saw. They were craving the physical pleasure and then John says, and it offers pride, Satan's favorite sin. Pride in our achievements and possessions. And this is what Genesis 3, 6 says. They also noticed this fruit was desirable to make one wise. Yeah, it really wasn't about the fruit. It was about what it represented. It was about the thing they thought they would get from it. Physical pleasure, a delight to the eyes, 
And making one wise will really be somebody. It won't be under God anymore. And so when Satan shows up here, we see him coming with the same strategy. He's tempting Jesus to make this stone become a loaf of bread. He says, you know, the Son of God shouldn't be suffering pain like this. How easy, Jesus, it would be to end this pain and bring pleasure instead. You can put an end to the pain and have pleasure. Wouldn't that be wonderful? So what's the deal here? Is God against bread? Is there something he has against carbs? I mean, isn't Jesus about to feed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread? He's going to do plenty of bread miracles. Why not make one additional loaf right now in a moment of need? The answer is no. It's not about the bread. God is not against bread, which is a good thing because I've seen that uh, some of you have been making a lot of bread lately and posting some lovely pictures on your social media accounts. And, uh, you know, I would say I think God would be even more pleased if you would take some of that bread and share it with your friends who may have killed their sourdough starter within 24 hours because he forgot to feed it. But that's beside the point. It's not about the bread. What it's about is what the bread represents. It's about the autonomy. Just like it was in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't about the fruit. It was about the autonomy. It was about me deciding how to meet my needs in my way, and I don't really care what God has to say about it. And Jesus responds, No, because the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. He's quoting the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3. If you read the whole verse in Deuteronomy 8, 3, it says, He humbled you, by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna. That's the first half of the verse. What's he talking about here? He's talking about an incident in the wilderness. A wilderness that was right next door to the one Jesus was in. The Sinai wilderness. God, under Moses, had led the people out of slavery in Egypt. And they get out there into the desert. And three days go by. And the people start to run out of food a little bit. And they start to get angry and they start grumbling against God and grumbling against Moses and hurling accusations and threatening to go back to Egypt. And so God said, I'm going to feed you. And there's going to be this substance called manna, which appears on the ground every morning. The word just meant, what is it? And so they saw it and they said, what is it? And Moses said, yeah, I know. And so they would go out and they would harvest this and they could make all kinds of things with it. God fed them with manna every morning. The manna was there afresh. And so they would go out and they would harvest the manna. And in reflecting back later on this incident, this is what Moses says about it. He says, God was humbling you during those three days when you were a little hungry and threw a big tantrum by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna. Why? To teach you that people do not live by bread alone, rather we live by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Yeah, when we get hungry, we're forced to wrestle with a number of questions. Everything seems fine with God when we're not hungry, but when we get hungry, all of a sudden, things get real. We ask, will God come through? Will I wait on God? Or will I take things into my own hands? Will I make the pain go away on my own? Because there's a lot of times we can do that. We can make the pain go away. It would be in an illegitimate way, my way, my timing. But will I do that? 
and we're forced to wrestle with these questions. And when God lets us go hungry, that is the time where we learn. We learn humility, he says. He humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna. There has to be a time of going hungry because that's the, the time when we learn to feed first on his promise of provision and then on his provision. His promises will always be there. The provision will come and go. God promises to take care of his kids, but he never promises we'll never be hungry. We've got to go through some hunger for us to grow, as, as you can see from this verse right here. And so what happens then in the future, even when you're hungry, physically, we have the promise, and that promise becomes as good as gold. It becomes as certain as the rising of the sun, and so we can latch onto that, and that gives us the patience to wait in the meantime until the provision finally comes through. And this is hard to learn. It's hard to learn this lesson. I feel like God has been speaking to me through this verse lately. You know, one of the things I've noticed is as kind of stress has increased over the past month or two, as everything's changed, is I've noticed um, that, that feeling I was talking about earlier, that it's like I'm out of emotional reserves and things like I normally would take in stride. I just feel like I, I find my anger coming out in ways that they just weren't two months ago. And I was feeling frustrated. I was like, you know, Jesus promised living water. Why is it that my emotional reserves are so, so shallow right now? Why can't I just pull from this living water? And God had me in Deuteronomy 8, oh, a couple weeks ago. And I was reading this verse and he pointed out, God has to let you go hungry before he can feed you with his manna. And sometimes it takes a little while to get hungry. It's not that it's not there for the eating, but it's like, it's like, God's like, are you really hungry enough to eat it yet? This is part of the process of spiritual growth where God has to let, let the hunger increase a little bit. He's got to let our need level rise so that we're willing to go to him and receive from him. Because otherwise, we're too proud. We're not humble enough. Because this is God's humbling process. Two things, letting you go hungry and feeding you with manna. And I share that because I, I don't think I'm the only one going through this right now. Some of you, God is letting you go hungry so that you can learn humility, so that you can learn to go to him. And he's, he's just waiting. He's waiting for you. Hunger is the best cook, they say. And he's waiting for you to get hungry. And he's there whenever you want to turn to him. I should mention... Jesus eventually got the bread. He just waited a little bit longer to get it. But he got it in God's timing and in God's way instead of shamefully in Satan's timing and the way that Satan had suggested. So how are you going to get yours? Will you stand with him and say, no, I'm not going to take things into my own hands. I'm not going to do it my way and in my timing. God, I want to trust you. I want to keep coming to you and trusting you to meet my needs, and then you get the joy of seeing him come through. Your faith will grow. So Jesus has resisted the first lure, but Satan doesn't pack up his gear and go home. No, he pulls out another one, some different bait. Number two, the craving for everything we see. It says the devil took him and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Must have been some sort of a vision, since you can't see all the kingdoms of the world from the Judean desert. And he said, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them. 
I will give it all to you if you will worship me. 1 John 5, 19, one of many passages such as this one that teach that Satan is, is the ruler of the world system. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, John writes in 1 John 5. And so Satan does have a certain amount of power, a certain amount of authority. He's got resources at his disposal, and he's ready to write you a check. The problem is, whatever check he writes you, he's writing you this check to buy your allegiance, to distract you from the things of God, but whatever check he writes you, it will bounce. He's the father of lies. He's not the kind of being you want to do business with. It will bounce. You will find incredible disappointment when you get the thing that the world promised you. And you will also maybe feel a sense of shame because you know that you didn't hold out for what God wanted you to have, for what God wanted you to do. And this is how some people get involved with the occult. They're desperate and they make deals with evil spirits, evil forces that they later come to regret. And it's terrifying to them. But I've got good news for you. If you're one of those people, Jesus Christ is superior to Satan. And he wants to set you free from whatever pacts you have made and whatever authority you've given up in your life to evil spirits. He will set you free. Just come to him. The temptation here is the shortcut. Here Jesus, he knows he's got the road of suffering ahead and Satan is offering the crown without the cross. And this could have been tempting to him to bypass everything that lay before him, including the excruciating death, the shameful death on the cross. And you will also face temptations to take shortcuts in serving God. There's no shortcut to growth. There's no shortcut to effective service of God. These shortcuts will only set you back. You know, some people like to neglect the behind-the-scenes service that's so essential for Christian leadership. Uh, some Christian leaders will neglect their family in order to, to love the church of God, and God says, that's not allowed, that's out of bounds. You need to love your family that God gives you and the church that God has put in your life. They will neglect time with God in order to do things for God. Neglecting prayer, going deeper in the word. These are all temptations that are always lurking. But Jesus rejected these. He rejected the shortcut. The scriptures say, he replies again, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Another quote from Deuteronomy. And so Jesus has responded twice now with the scriptures. Let's think about this question, how to respond to temptation. Let's see, is it work yourself up into an emotional frenzy so you feel like resisting? That's not what Jesus does here. Do you snap your wrist with a rubber band every time you have a bad thought, like I was taught to do? <laughs> no, that's not what Jesus is doing here. No rubber bands involved. Try to numb your feelings and shut your feelings down. Nope, I don't see that. Turn on the pure willpower. Ah, uh, not exactly. That's not what Jesus does either. You just sit around feeling sorry for yourself. I've tried that one. That doesn't work either. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Now, what does Jesus do? He simply quotes the word of God. He draws his sword and he says, the scriptures say it is written again and again and again and nothing else besides that. 
Yeah, Jesus had already learned the scriptures beforehand. The time to prepare is before the temptation comes. And then the Holy Spirit will call the verses to mind. As Psalm 119 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This might be a good time to put some effort into memorization. Don't get into an argument. Don't even get into a discussion. Just simply say, it is written. Satan will come to you and he will say, you deserve this after all you've been through. And you say, it is written. He says, just one more time. You're just going to get it out of your system. This will be the last one. And you say, it is written. He starts coming in with the threats. He says, you're taking this thing with God too far. What's your family going to think? You know, you're missing your chance at happiness. And you say, it is written. And then he tempts you to do it. And then he's like, what'd you do? Don't tell anybody about this. Just just decide you're not going to do it again. That's really what you need to do here. What would they do? Threats about admitting what you did wrong. You just say, it is written. You may need to learn verses that work for you. I can't give you the verses that are going to work for you. You need to learn these. You need to be able to quote these when the temptation comes. And the truth, once again, is Jesus will eventually receive all the kingdoms of the world and authority over them. It's not like he's going to miss out on that, but he's going to get them in the Father's way and the Father's timing, not Satan's way and timing. It's really a matter of when here. And so Satan gets out his third and final lure, the boastful pride of life. Perhaps his favorite sin. This was the one that caused him to fall. The devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say... He will order his angels to protect and guard you. Psalm 91, 11 through 12. Satan says, we're quoting scripture. I can quote scripture too. And he can. He knows a lot of verses. And he knows how to use them against you. And so imagine this scene. He takes him to the highest point on the temple. Herod's temple stretched 150 feet above the the temple courtyard down below. Religious leaders would have been present. Thousands of people would have been there to see a man perched atop the temple. Again, this was a vision, but it's something that he was offering to take Jesus to, if Jesus was willing to do it. But imagine to watch a man do a free dive from the top of the temple and to come to a halt a foot above the ground and to stand up. The people would fall down and worship. This would be the great announcement. His fame would shoot through the roof. That would go viral. And so what we see here is the the temptation to fame plus the temptation for a shortcut to avoid the real path to victory plus the temptation to take things into his own hands. There's a lot in common with these temptations. But Jesus responds yet again. The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. And we don't have time to get into what all that means, but the point is clear. Satan is quoting, misquoting scripture, and Jesus uses scripture to counter Satan's misuse of scripture. And this is why we need to learn the whole counsel of God. We need to not just memorize words on the page, but we also need to learn how to interpret the word, how to fit this passage in with that passage. There's a level of sophistication we're going to need here. Otherwise, we're going to get pretty confused when Satan brings his brilliant intellect. It is written. And finally, 
Luke tells us, when the devil had finished Jesus, tempting Jesus, he left him. And this is the good news. Temptation won't last forever. Resist the devil and he will flee. We need to be aware of projecting. Projecting is where you're feeling a certain way and you say, I'm going to feel this way for the rest of my life. And that will just lead you to despair and you'll never be able to resist temptation if you think this is going to last forever. No, know that it will last for a time and then it will go away. The bad news, on the other hand, is the rest of the verse. He left him until a more opportune time, until the next opportunity came. The bad news is that temptation, it will go away, but it won't go away forever. You're going to be dealing with temptation for the rest of your life in some form or another. So you might as well get used to it. What we can do now is we can learn how to battle temptation. And what I will say is there's things in your life probably that you think, I can't imagine ever having victory over this. I have felt that way. And you'll be surprised if you, if you walk with God, if you learn the scripture and build your life around them, you will find some of those temptations. They don't, it's not just that they don't dominate your life anymore you may not even feel tempted by them anymore. That is a level of healing. Now, other temptations will come along, so don't get me wrong on that, and they'll be different and, and, and things like that. But the point is there's a trajectory here. There's a, a victory. That, there's a victorious walk with God that you can have. You can gain substantial victory. And when we do resist temptation, look at the very next verse. Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. He went there anointed by the Spirit, But there's something new about the power that he had, the gains that he had out there in the desert, resisting temptation. And this is what you will find as well. Final thoughts. I've got three for you. First of all, Jesus understands temptation. He understands it. Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet is without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that a great promise? We can draw near. We can receive mercy. We can find grace. Isn't that what you need? If you're not a Christian, this is what you can do tonight. You can come to the great high priest, the only priest you need, according to Scripture, Jesus and admit your sinfulness. Admit that you fall into temptation. Tell him, I want your forgiveness. And he will give you permanent, unbreakable forgiveness. So you can draw near. You can receive mercy. You can find grace tonight. And if you're a Christian, you need to remember who you're talking to here. And you need to draw near to him. Not to run away when you fall, but to draw near to him with confidence and receive the love that he so wants to give you. A second thought, don't let yourself get isolated. We saw Satan rush to Jesus when he saw him isolated in the desert. We need to proactively link arms with others. You need to decide now that you're going to talk with somebody if you're feeling tempted. Decide now that you're going to talk with someone if you fall. And you're not going to rationalize it away. And decide now you're going to stop withdrawing and move toward those other Christians. You need need the strength that come from other like-minded people who are all trying to struggle in the right direction. 
In fact, some of us, we need to go talk to somebody because we are falling into temptation. We have fallen. And it's time to come clean with it. You're going to feel so much better if you do. You're, gonna, you're not going to believe their, their response. Go to a spiritually mature person and see the grace and the relief that is so close. Finally, we need to resist the devil by the power of the word. Yes, resist the devil. If you don't resist Satan, you give him a foothold. You know, you open the door for all kinds of things in your life. That, that extended sexual lust will warp your mind. That bitterness will sink its roots into you. The feeling sorry for yourself, the self-focus, it will make it harder and harder to feel any gratitude. But resist the devil and he will flee. That is the promise and that is what we see in the life of Christ here. What you need to do is you need to learn the word of God and you need to learn to say it is written. That's what we learn from Jesus here. And that's all we've got for Mark tonight. And next week, we'll be back in the book of Mark, but I'll be passing the baton to pastor and author Dennis McCallum, who's going to take us through the next couple weeks in our study in the book of Mark so we can pray for Dennis for next week. I'd like to just close with some prayer. Father God, we're thankful you haven't left us on, the, on our own here, Lord. You haven't left us in the dark, but you've given us the way forward. You've given us your word. You're teaching us how to use it, Lord. You've given us the example of Christ, and you've given us the personal help through your Holy Spirit. I pray for people out there tonight, Lord, who are thinking about coming to Christ for the first time. I pray that they would believe that they can approach the throne of grace, Lord, that they can find mercy there if they're willing to simply admit they need it to come to you with the empty hands of grace. And I pray for those of us who are struggling, who are isolated, Lord. I pray that you give us one thing that we can do here. I pray you'd show us the way forward out of this spiral and into the path of victory that you promise in Jesus Christ. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.